Welcome, everybody, to episode 17 of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Jocelyn. I'm joined again this week, as always, by my colleague, Bill Roggio. Hello, everyone. Bill and I are senior fellows at the Foundation for Defensive Democracies, and we've been running FDD's Long War Journal for about 13 years now. I always say that at the beginning of these shows, Bill, and I can't get over how long it's been. It's been a long war. It has. Um, there was a time when we did a lot of reporting and analysis on Libya and the jihadi scene in that country during the uprising against Gaddafi's regime and then during the immediate aftermath after the dictator finally fell. Um, we've gotten away from that reporting in recent months for a lot of reasons. There's a lot going on. But this week, we're happy to have a guest on the show who's a true expert on Libya. Her name is Sarah Carlson, and she's a former CIA officer. She's written a new book released just last month titled In the Dark of War, a, CIA's, a CIA officer's inside account of the evacuation from Libya. Neither Bill nor I really knew Sarah before reaching out to her after she published her book, but we were so impressed by the book and its contents and by what Sarah had to say that we just had to get her on the show. It really is a well-written, informative, and candid account. Uh, we highly recommend it. And we're very happy today to be able to talk to her about it. So lucky for us, we have the author herself with us on the show this week. So with that, Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you. I really appreciate having me on. It is our, ple- it is our pleasure, Sarah. Thank you for joining us. Bill, you want to maybe you want to start the show, Bill, maybe getting in a little bit about Sarah's background, because both you and I were impressed by how she mixes both the personal content and also sort of the national security counterterrorism focus of, of her work and how those two things meld so well together in her book, making it a very interesting read. And maybe, Bill, you want to start off by giving her asking some questions about her, sort of her background, and where she came from. Yeah, absolutely. Sarah, it's a fantastic book, and I, I recommend all of our listeners to download or or buy the physical book it's in the dark of war you do have to read this but sarah your your book it, it um without a doubt it's a it's more than a book about libya and your experience there during the revolution uh, it's, it's very clear this is this is a book about faith about faith and your faith in family your faith in your friends and your colleagues your faith in america and your faith in god professing uh, your faith in God and country, it's not a very popular thing to do these days. Um, I commend you for having the courage to, to speak up and, and declare your faith. Um, what has been the driving force behind your faith? Well, I was actually raised in the church. So my dad was a minister. He was a Presbyterian minister. And so I I grew up in it, in, in faith in the church. And I think... Um, you know, for me, it was how I was raised, but then also taking that on personally and having that be sort of my my personal mission or my path that, um, you know, there are different times in life where you can begin to doubt like what you're doing and what your purpose is. And for me, you know, I've always had that strong sense of purpose and that's very much built off of my faith that, um, you know, this sense of like integrity and, and mission grew out of that, that I needed to go down this path and, and that it was the path that was meant to go down. Yeah. It's, it's certainly a fantastic story that you tell about that with your, your, your mother and your brother. It's a a very strong family. It's uh, you know, it's, it's the quintessential American experience. Um, Like, like many of us in this field, the 9-11 changed our lives before the just before the attack on, on September tenth, two thousand and one, what were you doing? Um, where were you on that faithful day, and how how did you end up as a CIA, CIA analyst? So I was in college, and I was getting my degree in English, so that helped later with writing the book. Um, 
Well, actually, you could tell because it's well written, and we, we read we read a lot of these insider accounts, and they're not always well written. So, <laughs> so it, it paid off. Your your degree paid off. Yes, I appreciate that. Um, so I was working in emergency management, and that's actually what I'm doing again today. So out here in the Pacific Northwest, near in the Seattle area, and like I had no intention of doing something sort of on the national scale. I thought I would be doing. Um, first responder work. So maybe I'd stay in emergency management or maybe police or fire. So that was really what I was looking at doing. I was volunteering with search and rescue. I was a certified EMT, uh, emergency medical technician. So that was very much sort of the, the path that I was going down. And, you know, as you mentioned, I had three brothers, I have three brothers <laughs> uh, and we're all really close. We're really close in age and, um, you know, we we're really good friends growing up. And so they also had no intention of joining the military at the time. But then when 9-11 happened, um, we all wanted to serve. So that I think very much is due to my mother and how she raised us. So my parents actually got divorced when I was quite young. And then um, she continued to raise us um, very strongly with um sort of our Christian values, but then also, like you said, God and country, right? So we come from a very strong military family where I think most of my uncles, my grandparents, um, they all served, my stepdad served. So after 9-11 happened, uh, we all knew we wanted to do something more. So all three of my brothers joined the military, and then I joined Defense Intelligence Agency, and I chose defense because they were joining the military. So I wanted to um, serve in a similar capacity. Yeah. And uh, God bless your mother. I mean, and she certainly raised a, a, a family that is devoted to service to this, to this country. Um, yeah, tell, tell, tell me a little bit, what are, where are your brothers uh, or where have you, I believe one of them is out of the military and two are, what, where did they serve? So um, one is still in, he's in the air force. So he's up in Alaska right now and um, continues to serve. So he's been in, um, I mean, all, he's been in all the war zones, right? And sure. um, he's with the Air Force, so um, sort of a different capacity than like what I was doing. Um, and then my older brother is out now. He was an officer in the Army, and he actually was one of those that got the 15-month deployment. So um, he had already done like a nine-month one and then he got the 15-month one. And after that, he was like, uh, and I'm done. Yeah. Um, they were ready to start a family. Um, so he he got out after that. And then my other brother joined the army as well. He enlisted and he was actually injured in training. And so um, he ended up having to get out. So I think that was actually quite hard for him to sure. have us all going and doing all these things and then him not being able to. So it, it was quite hard, I think. But he's the one with the three little girls that I've helped quite a lot with that I talk about at the end of the book. And um, yeah, sure. You know, he, he had a different path. And I think that's also, um, Bill, as you mentioned, like the faith and, and knowing that, yeah, it kind of sucked at the time, right? But that was the path he was meant to go down. And now he's raising his three little girls. And chances are they're also going to serve you know, in some capacity or another. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic story. And so, um, I assume your one brother served in Iraq during the surge. If he did the the 15 month deployment that, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just, that was, that was a tell right there. 
Um, yeah, I was actually in Iraq during that time and uh, embedded as a reporter. And that's uh, those guys. They're not only do they sacrifice a lot while they're there, that 15 month deployment, but the pre-deployment and the post-deployment. If you want to raise a family under those conditions, it's extremely hard. It's people don't understand the sacrifice that our soldiers make um, with their families. It's not just the time in country, but what happens before and after as well. And you could be looking at a, a not seeing your family in the case of a 15 month surge for almost two years. Um, yeah, I think people don't realize how much is involved with training as well. So even though a deployment might be nine months or 15 months, there's weeks, <laughs> weeks and weeks of um, training before and after. Why don't, you, why don't you tell us a little bit, Sarah, about where you, before you ended up in Libya, sort of where you were, how you, how you sort of uh, made your path on to Libya before we get into the weeds about Libya. Yeah, I, um, so I mentioned I joined DIA and that was spring of 2003. And by November, I was deploying to Iraq as well. So I was in Baghdad and I was there, um, it was about four and a half months. I was supposed to go three and they wanted me to say six. So just split the difference. Um, so I did that. And then, you know, at the time there weren't many people, especially civilians who had deployed to Iraq. And so that kind of pigeonholed me into, um, you know, definitely counterterrorism, which I ended up doing my whole career. And then um, Middle East and sort of like North Africa, South Asia area. So I did, I did a lot of that, but my very specific focus was on attack plans against the U.S. and Europe. So looking at those groups um, operating in those regions, not what they were doing there, but what they were trying to do here. And so I ended up doing a rotation with NCTC, the National Counterterrorism Center, and with uh, U.S. Northern Command. So I was out in Colorado Springs for a while. And then when I was going back to D.C., that's when I knew... Um, you know, rather than go back to DIA headquarters, I applied to CIA and got the position there. And it was very similar work where I was looking at um, terrorist groups operating in South Asia and their intent to attack um, the U.S. and Europe. That's, wow. Very extremely interesting. Uh, we'll probably do an entire show on that one as well. Um you know, one of the things that come out in the book is you're an archery, an avid archery enthusiast, and uh, you even brought your bow to, to Libya and you practice weekly. I, I love that story. Um, I wish I, you could come out here and teach me. And I, I also see that you like you like to kayak and hike, which are among my favorite activities. Um, yeah, I, I think, imagine uh, it, pretty lucky being raised in the Northwest. We're yeah. very outdoorsy here. And uh, my stepdad actually is the one that taught me archery. Um but it was really fun. You know, we have lots of pictures of him trying to teach us uh, archery, throwing knives, uh, right. anything like that. Yeah. Bill, Bill and his family, by the way, are very overactive outdoor enthusiasts, I would say. He sends me these videos all the time with him, him and his daughters doing all sorts of stuff outside. So I can I immediately knew he was going to be drawn to that part of your book. Yeah, I, I, I love it. it. I love the, the little things in there. It's uh, It's just fantastic. A guy like me. I'm just sitting there shaking, nodding my head the whole time going, yep, your, your mom, your family, your stepdad, they brought you up right. Um, the, the, kayak must, the kayaking must be fantastic in the Pacific Northwest. I, I, I got to imagine, right? I mean, I'm in New Jersey where it's all really not that nice. Yeah, it's, I, it's nice on the Puget Sound. So you're pretty close to water wherever you go around here, right? So yep, yep. kayaking, paddleboarding, that kind of thing, they're, they're really popular. Well, you are definitely blessed in that respect. 
Um, so um, you're you're sent to Tripoli shortly after the attack on the U.S. Uh, consulate annex in Benghazi, and we'll discuss that further at length uh, uh, later in the podcast. Um, and you mentioned the, your struggles with fitting in with a group of ex-SEALs, and there's other combat veterans in there. I believe there's a, a former Special Operations Forces uh, or Special Forces uh, soldier, a ranger, and others in there. Um, and, uh, you know, these are combat veterans with long hours, and you're certainly isolated from the world. What were your greatest challenges in, you know, personally, and how did you overcome them? It was really hard to fit in. Um, so I'm you know, a woman, (laughs) obviously, and there were not many there. It was um, mostly men who were there. So that in itself is, you know, there's all these, um, you know, I I jokingly, affectionately refer to them as warriors um, in the book. Yes. And um, we used to call it like the table where they ate the warrior table. So there there definitely was um, a difference, I think, between like me as a CIA officer and then them as the security officers. And then I was also the analyst. So I was like the nerd, right? Um, I was the one walking around all the time with the iPad. Like I, I never actually put it down unless I was going in um, to the office area where I couldn't take it. Nerd is a good word on this show, Sarah, by the way. Nerd is a good <laughs> word. That's like, I, if you look back at any, any time I discuss myself publicly, that's how I describe myself. So, And I describe Bill that way a couple times, too. I don't know if he likes that or not. but I'm good with it. Right. right. I like to say I'm an action nerd. because Yeah, you're I definitely an action these, nerd. Yeah. Outdoorsy type things. But um, yeah, it was, it was hard to fit in. I think I ended up sort of, I had to force myself to be social and to... Um, you know, try to make friends with these people because uh, I'm, I'm more introverted. And so it was important to me that I get to know them. So like I made a point of learning everybody's first name, like even the Marines, even the people who worked, um, worked on the compound. So some of the locals are immigrants that have come there to work. And so um, it was important to me that I know their names, which sounds like a really sort of silly minor thing, but um, it was a way of letting them know that like they were people, you know, they were important because I think we have a tendency to um, sort of distance, like if we just go by call signs or something like that, which I know I use that in the book, it's just call signs. But I think that sort of like desensitizes, it has a tendency to do that. And so I wanted them to know that like they were important enough to me that I learned their name and I would say hi to them by name every time I saw them. And I think that really helped sort of establish some rapport and build start start with building that trust, which ended up being really important at the end. Yeah, it's it's very clear that you earned um, their their trust and their respect when going through that book. That's not something you could fake. Um, they they seem to well, actually, I know it. I mean, they relied on not just your nerdiness, but at the end of the book, when you're evacuating the embassy in Tripoli. Not only you're given the actual um, tactical command of the vehicle that's leading out, and that is certainly um, any any of us who've been out in the combat zone. If you're going to take that right hand uh, seat in the front, you have a very uh, very key position. You're ba- you're um, and it's something you know that they're not you know they they bypassed 
some individuals who ha- who actually had um, were active duty military personnel at some time. So I, if that's you know, given that that's the case, I know that they res- they had to respect you, they had to trust you, they they viewed you as more than just a brain. They you were you were something a lot more, and uh, that that came across very clear in the book. Let, let's uh, talk a little bit about that because that's the framing of the book, and and justifiably so is the U.S. evacuation from. Tripoli and Libya, and maybe you can walk listeners through what that actually entailed and what that actually meant, uh, both to you personally and to the U.S. So the evacuation came sort of at the end of two weeks of straight fighting. Although, you know, the fighting didn't end. Obviously, it's still going on today um, in some form or another. But we were there two weeks before we were able to get out. And so in the actual, like, evacuation, how it was set up, we went out in sections. And so um, there was a lead vehicle and a follow vehicle, which is what Bill was talking about. There's, um, you know, security officer driving every one of those vehicles. And then in most cases, there was a security officer also as the tactical commander. And these security officers, I think people are pretty familiar with them by now. Um, but they had a lot of special um, operations backgrounds. So um, you know, from a variety of, of the special operation forces. So they had extensive backgrounds. I think it was like a seven year minimum requirement to um, be there as a, one of our security officers. And so they had a great deal of experience. So for me personally, it was, um, it was pretty scary <laughs> to be in that role, but it was also like, like you're kind of playing right. It was a great honor to have them trust me and know that I was capable of, of serving in that capacity. This is quite unusual. I was the only woman to do that. And then also, like we were just talking about, like I was, I was a nerd. You know? <laughs> I was the analyst. So I didn't think that that would be something that I would ever do. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm the only analyst that's ever done that. Um, like it was in my performance review at the end when I got back, I had to do like, I mean, everybody, <clears throat> excuse me, I think everybody has to do like yearly performance reviews, right? And mine's like served as tactical commander during an overland evacuation. Um, that would go in the non-nerd section of the- Right, and <laughs> that would be the action reason. side, right. solidly. <laughs> yeah, Sarah, you were smart enough to uh, to know that you should be afraid at that moment. And uh, I certainly commend that. Some people don't have enough intelligence to, to know that uh, they're given great responsibility, so- but I think that also, thank you. And I think that gets into a lot of the mentality of what was going on at the time too. So it was, we were stuck there for two weeks and we were getting bombed and we had absolutely no recourse. We couldn't do anything like offensive, right? It was only defensive, which when it's rockets and incoming, it's just hide in the bunker, right? Which we couldn't do while we were getting ready to go out. So people, I think, had a tendency to um, sort of minimize or downplay uh, the threat, but it was just like a way of dealing with it, you know, be like, no, I'm not scared. It's not a big deal. <laughs> like, uh, no, you're lying. <laughs> so um, I, I think it's, you know, it's just a defense mechanism. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Some, I mean, look, and it's important to, to certainly not, you know, you don't want to scare your, your colleagues by showing how afraid you are. So that's certainly <laughs> and who was, and who was firing on you at the time, Sarah, who was to give listeners some perspective on sort of the, you know, one of the great things in the book is that it portrays the chaos in Libya and sort of all the competing factions and problems and all the, you know, the, 
different tribes and militias that you have to deal with and maybe give listeners a little bit of sense of who was actually firing on you and, and uh, your protections or supposed protection around where you guys were stationed. So it was Operation Dawn at the time that was firing on us. So that was a conglomeration of different tribes and militias. So as you said, it was quite chaotic. And one of my roles as analyst was to assess the chaos. So to figure out which groups were working with which groups and starting to form these blocks or sides and how that divide was deepening. So like also, as Bill said, like I knew, I knew all the threats because that was my job um, to assess all of them. So I knew exactly what was coming at us and we were, they were firing towards us. So it was operation Dawn and they weren't necessarily firing at us, but they were fighting with um, this, the other block, which the Zintan was a, a major tribe involved in that. And we were sitting on Zintan land and we were right next to the airport and the airport was very much one of those um, centers of gravity, right? Um, whoever controlled the airport controlled access to the country. And so um, Operation Dawn um, really wanted control of the airport. And if they couldn't get control of the airport, then nobody would have it. So they actually started the um, civil war by firing on it. And so that morning um, that they started, it was July 13th, 2014. And it was like burned in my memory. Um, You know, you could see it. They started with the airport and like they were hitting the planes. You could see the smoke billowing up. And so um, Operation Dawn was primarily led by the Misratan uh, militia, which came from the city of Misrata. So it was this um, process over time of them forming alliances with some of these other groups. And the groups that I was most worried about them forming alliances with were the um, the terrorist groups. So they tended to be more sort of Islamist aligned. And so that led to a more natural affiliation with the terrorists. So uh, Ansar al-Sharia being the primary one I was worried about at the time. And then we were starting to see a lot of um, people returning from Iraq and Syria. So during the revolution and sort of right after a lot of, um, a lot of North Africans had been sort of funneled through Libya to go to Iraq and Syria. And so in 2014, that was when we were first starting to see them come back and starting like very much at the beginning stages, starting to see them setting up um, an Islamic state in Libya. Yes, we're going to discuss Ansar Sharia right after this question. I know this is one of Tom's yeah, favorites. Yeah, this, this is where we turn to the, we're going to turn to the nerdy part of the podcast very shortly here, but go ahead. Let's, yeah. just, okay. just one quick question. Look, Sarah, yeah. your, your devotion to your colleagues, um, trying to keep them safe by having the best intelligence, it's, it's admirable. It comes across, like you said, you're on your iPad, you're up every morning finding out. So, and a big, it seems to me that a very big uh, part of your intelligence gathering was uh, social media. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. I was on it pretty constantly. Um, I also learned Arabic, so um, much better at reading than speaking. Uh, apparently, I have a terrible American accent. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're not the only one. That's my main problem. Yeah. But I, I got pretty good at reading, and so I would, I would scan it every morning. Well, every morning, like all day long, right? But first thing in the morning, my boss sort of, he would ask me, pretty early every morning, like, hey, what's going on in Libya today? And it was not 
an offhand question. It was because he, he knew that I would know and I had to have an answer because he was forming um, his plans for the day and the operations and sort of what he would or would not allow given the current threat environment. So it was, it was really quite important that I have an answer to that. And so I spent a lot of time even before I got into the office scanning social media and current news and um, anything like that. So living groups have a tendency or they did have a tendency to post their plans and intentions um, online for everybody to see. So um, that's where I was actually getting a lot of my information at the time. Yeah. And you're look, your boss clearly um, relied on you heavily. One of the, one of the stories I found interesting in the book was that uh, um, you were one of the last pre- people to use as they're destroying the um, computers and everything within the embassy, just preparing to leave. They're they're destroying everything, and I think you're one of the if one of the last, if not the last person on the last computer that's set up to to send out your last report. And I thought that was very fascinating. And so, um, one quick follow up question: Did social media blessing a curse, a little of both? I'm I'm kind of in that latter category, and I'm curious what you think. I think it's a little bit of both. Like I, even now, you know, it's hard for me to want to use social media, but it's so effective to get information out and to learn what other people are doing. And I don't think we can really get away from it anymore. And I think we're probably going to end up using it even more. Um, And that includes terrorists. So I think analysts are going to have to rely on open source information more and more as um, this trend continues. And, and I will say, that I actually first heard about um, the Long War Journal from from a terrorist from a debriefing <laughs> that I was doing. So that was you know like a decade ago now. But uh, was he a big was he a big fan of ours or or not so much? <laughs> he was he was in fact. Because um, we, we go they go both ways. You know, some of them hate us, some of them love us because they get value out of what we say. It's a really bizarre sort of relationship here we have with our with our extended audience. You know, so. I, you know, I think social media and, and that um, access to information, like it's, it's so important now and it makes the world such a small place in some ways. And, you know, like how small a world is that that we're talking now? And I first heard about you like from a terrorist of all people. So um, I, I just don't think we're getting away from our reliance on the Internet or social media. And I think it's just going to increase. And I think that'll be one of the challenges for CIA analysts in the future from here on out. They have... Um, an open source center, um, which is now housed with the DNI. And um, I was, I was talking to them every day. God bless them. <laughs> like it, let, me ask you a question about, let me ask you a question about that. What, you know, we've heard rumblings about possible cutbacks or cutbacks to open source center. Have you heard anything along those lines that you, you can talk about? Or is there anything, you know, we, obviously we, as outsiders, we don't have access to it, but we've heard, we know a lot of people in government who do. Um, and so they, They've, we've heard from people over the time that it seems like they've scaled back sort of what they're doing, at least in, in the, world, the world that we operate in or analyze. I haven't heard one way or the other, but I will say I think they are incredibly important mm-hmm. um, for all the reasons that we were just talking about, that um, I relied on them a great deal. And, you know, I think people maybe don't realize, like the CIA still secrets, right? If it's not a secret, then... Um, that's not like CIA isn't made to collect open source information. So I think that's one of the reasons it was uh, moved to the DNI, but I still think that's a really important um, function that we need to be looking at that kind of information. 
Yeah, no, we agree. I mean, it's one of the things we've talked about in a previous episode of the podcast, sort of one of the analytic biases we've run across is that basically because there's sort of this um, premium put on stealing super secret stuff that if it isn't super secret, if it's just out there in the open, it sort of can get devalued in some analysts' minds. And we we certainly don't look at it that way. Certainly there's stuff that is super secret that's totally important and that you know you need to value highly. But there's a lot of great information out there, as you well know, and as your book documents. And the situation reports that you mentioned that I was doing at the end, um, and I was sending them back on a weekly basis throughout the year. So um, I would cable them back to um, CIA headquarters. And and they were relying on that a lot too because of this sort of disconnect between um, open source and um, the analytic world. So I was taking a lot of my information from what I was seeing. It was a mix for sure of... Um, you know, open source and classified, but, um, you know, cabling it back. And, and I, I know a lot of people really relied on, on those cables to know what was going on and, and to help them know where to look for different things. Yeah, I think this is a good segue, actually, for um, something that really stood out in the book to me as a fellow nerd, which was um, your reliance on Osama bin Laden's files. And we, I keep teasing, we're going to have a whole podcasts or maybe two on just the, that whole topic and our involvement in trying to get them released and analyze them and all that stuff. Um, but you're right in the book that, you know, a big reason why you wanted to get involved in Libya and serve there was because you, you could see in Osama bin Laden's files that Al-Qaeda wanted to set up shop in post-Qaddafi Libya and potentially use that as a base for attacks in the West and, and abroad. Maybe talk a little bit about that, the value you saw of Osama bin Laden's files. You know, there's there's some, one of the reasons we got involved in all this was there was this idea that Osama bin Laden was out of the game, he wasn't managing, he wasn't involved, he was sort of disconnected from the broader, you know, Al-Qaeda network. And uh, we just have accumulated so much evidence through the years that that, that was false. And we think the Bin Laden files are decisive on this. I know you were on Mike Morell's podcast just recently, and he writes about this in his book, and he explains in great detail how the CIA changed their entire analysis of Bin Laden's role in Al-Qaeda once they got the files. They realized that not only was he managing affairs, but he was even sometimes micromanaging affairs. Maybe talk a little bit about that and how that influenced your thinking on Libya. He was quite involved. Um, That was, like you said, very clear from the um, document exploitation it did, um, I think, change a lot. So that it was in the. This was before I went to Libya when that information came out. So that raid was 2011, and then um, we, you know, the initial like focus was getting the threat information against um, the homeland first, and then you know other countries. So that's that was, as I said, my area of expertise. So that's um, primarily what. I was looking at at the time and so were you involved then in the exploitation the initial triage of the documents and the files i didn't do that i i as an analyst i i wrote Sorry. assessments oh, yeah gotcha so well, that's not fascinating so that means you worked on the bin laden files for the u.s government assessing what was in them and, and figuring out what what they meant for americans and protecting americans yeah i was very much focused on um threats to the u.s so i was looking at from that angle mm-hmm. and and as you said it was um yeah, there was a lot of micromanaging, um, pretty specific thoughts and ideas um, that he had on on how attacks should be done and what the target should be. So I was looking at that. And then once we got through sort of the, the initial, you know, threats to the U.S., then it was threats to Europe. And so then that's when we found that exploitation, which um, I think in my book, I actually referenced the Long War Journal because you wrote about it. And so... Um, there, there was documentation that um, 
Osama bin Laden was looking at um, setting up a base of operations in Libya, as you said, um, to launch attacks against Europe. So that is what um, sort of piqued my interest in Libya and why I ended up applying for that analyst position there. You know, let's, let's talk a little bit about that file because that's one of my favorites. And this is why, as a fellow nerd, this stood out in your book when you're writing about this because there's this memo. There, of course, you know, Bin Laden was receiving memos all the time. As you say, he was managing, micromanaging this global network. And, you know, one of the types of files he was receiving, I refer to as the management memos. Basically, Atiyah Abdelrahman, his uh, Libyan lieutenant, uh, former member of the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, who becomes a, a big wig in Al Qaeda serves as one of his chief right-hand men, really, for Osama bin Laden, basically compiles these lengthy, in-depth memos summarizing events from all the different theaters. You know, here's what's going on in Afghanistan, here's what's going on in Somalia, here's what's going on in Iraq, here's what's going on in Libya, you know, and he goes through all this. And the memo you're talking about, or one of the memos you're talking about, of course, is where Rahman lays out basically, you know, Sheikh, here's what's going on, you know, and here's why we we see that Libya is basically a very permissive environment now and something that we should move forward with to exploit and build our mission. And and, and Rahman refers to it as, um, you know, a revolution. He says there's an Islamic revolution going on in Libya and the, this, this trend, this current is going our way to basically things are coming the jihadi way. And he mentions a couple things that come through the files, one of which is you have senior al-Qaeda personnel moving from um, Afghanistan, Pakistan, mainly guys who are freed from custody in Iran. They're detained in Iran for a time and the Iranians let go. And that's a whole convoluted story, which we won't get into now. But they basically get uh, freed from Iran and they're going to make their way um, to Libya. And, and he, he mentions Abu Anas al-Libi, who I'm sure you're, you're familiar with and had to track. This is a guy who was you know, charged with involvement in the 1998 U.S. embassy bombings. You know, Lo and behold, he's makes his way to post-Qaddafi Libya and sets up shop, and eventually the U.S. has to go after him there and capture him. There's another guy named Urwa Libby, or known as Urwa Libby, who's another al-Qaeda veteran who, who goes from Iran. He's mentioned in the files. So, yeah, I mean, basically, it stood out to me when you're talking about these files. You could see that al-Qaeda is moving personnel to um, from other theaters to Libya to take over. And one of the things that, they, that really stood out to me, too, was that they saw the, Islam, the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group and members of this group were being freed from prison. Now, this is a group that was a jihadi group that did have ties to al-Qaeda in the 1990s. It was uh, primarily focused on overthrowing Gaddafi. Um, they, in 2009, the LIFG basically has a revision of their fundamental doctrine. They say that they're no longer going to be invested in violence or tied to al-Qaeda or, or any of these things. Then as soon as, they, as soon as these guys get out of prison, of course, the first thing they do is they go right back to violence, right? They go right back to trying to fight Gaddafi and overthrow him. Uh, you know, so sort of reversing their whole revision. Um, maybe talk, this is another thing in your book that stood out to me is that there were State Department personnel um, who really kind of wanted to work with the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group or were sort of, you know, I don't want to say sympathetic to their cause, but saw them as maybe de facto allies. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that and why it's not such a great idea for Americans to get in bed with extremists. <laughs> yes. Um, so the LAFG, I think. Not, not that that was a leading question or anything. <laughs> <laughs> so I, the history between LAFG and Al-Qaeda goes back quite a long way. And as you mentioned, a lot of the very senior figures in Al-Qaeda were former LAFG members. So it gets into this whole question of like, LAFG and were they really defunct? Did they really denounce their um, extremism? Um, you know, a lot of analysts didn't really see that happening, um, especially because so many of them were then part of Al Qaeda, and we knew um, 
you know, as you, we've talked about, they, they stayed in touch. Um, I think a lot of stuff in Libya in particular is done based on personal relationships. So that was also a really interesting and maybe a little bit different dynamic than um, I saw in other sort of war zones or locations that um, they tended to rely more on people they knew and, um, and all that rather than a formal structure. So like, I think Al Qaeda is pretty, pretty organized and like top down, there's, you know, the leader and then the Shura council, and then there were other positions and, and it was very different in Libya with like Ansar al and the groups operating there. Um, so the LAFG, um, some of the members ended up um, joining the Libyan government and so the State Department then saw them as a legitimate um, part of the Libyan, Libyan government and that we should approach them and be working with them um, because of that affiliation and chose to, um, I don't ignore probably isn't the right word, but to, to believe that they had Libya's best interests at heart. And, um, you know, I strongly disagreed. I, from my perspective, um, I knew how closely Al-Qaeda was still tied to the LAFG and that a lot of the leadership of Al-Qaeda had been at one point or another um, Libyan and that those personal ties are really, really strong. Um, in addition, you know, the LAFG members controlled Matiga Airport, which I mentioned in the book as well. And that airport was used to send fighters to Iraq and Syria. So for people who are not aware, um, North Africans made up like the bulk of foreign fighters in Iraq and then later Syria. And a lot of them were funneled through Libya. So we saw, we saw that happening. Um, a lot of um, North Africans were coming into Libya because it was lawless. So they could they could do that. It was pretty easy. And then um, going through Matiga Airport to Syria, um, we we knew, like we we saw it. That's not that's not abstaining from violence or extremism, right? When you're sending fighters to Syria, certainly not when you're sending them to one of the most violent and extremist of the violent extremist organizations in Iraq and Syria at the time. You know, so. And then that set up the. Um, the issue later that those fighters started coming back right. and they were coming back through Matiga airport, which again was controlled by LIFG and some of these leaders that, um, you know, like the state department was wanting to work with, um, because they were also part of the, the, the official Libyan government. Um, but those fighters coming back, a lot of them were going east to Benghazi and Darna and they were the ones that sort of started the Islamic state of Libya. And then, I think after I left, but it started um, to expand, right? Like it became a safe haven. And um, it was a couple years later, they were doing, well, about a year later, they were doing, you know, um, videos for Islamic State in Libya and um, being featured in the Islamic State propaganda. So they um, established their presence pretty quickly and it, it exploded. It grew really fast. You know, let's let's talk about the period right before the Islamic State sort of blossoms in in Libya and gets the caliphate craze spray, spreads in North Africa, relying on sort of their fighters. Because between 2011 and 2013, 2014, let's say, you know, one of the things we've talked about a lot is that unlike ISIS, Al Qaeda, and Al Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb, 
you know, they didn't want to broadcast what they were doing a lot of times. You know, the, the simple strategy was, as you say in the book, change your name, right? If you change the name of a group, then that's enough to throw people off the scent, throw them off the trail, or you, you work through cutouts or carve-outs, you, uh, you know, clandestinely back other groups. And um, we early on detected that was going on with Ansar al-Sharia in Libya. Uh, we profiled the guys who were leading Ansar al-Sharia, including, you know, in Derna, you had Sufyan Ben Kumu, you know, a former driver for Osama bin Laden, you know, al-Qaeda veteran, somebody who was held at Guantanamo, U.S. intelligence and analysts had come up with all sorts of information in his dossier about his ties to al-Qaeda, and lo and behold, he ends up being Ansar al-Sharia. You know, you had the same dossier, same profiles for, you know, by coincidence, right, Sarah? It's just a coincidence that the same guys in, in, in Tunisia and Egypt and Yemen, they're all al-Qaeda guys who are leading Ansar al-Sharia. Um, and there was some confusion about Ansar al-Sharia Benghazi. I don't want to make a whole episode about that or a whole case on that. But it's interesting. I, I was wondering if you had tracked that Muhammad al-Zahawi, who was the head of Ansar al-Sharia in Benghazi originally, um, when he died, al-Qaeda issued a couple different glowing eulogies for him. And one of them was by al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which actually set up camps in Libya post-Qaddafi. And AQAP actually said in their eulogy that um, he had personally met, this is Zahui now, the head of Ansar al-Sharia Benghazi, had personally met with Osama bin Laden in the 1990s in Sudan and had adopted his manhaj or his methodology, meaning his program, at that time. Now, in Al-Qaeda world, that doesn't get to be a bigger compliment. You have adopted Al-Qaeda's methodology. It means you're on, you're on point, you're on game, you know, you're, you're, this is it, you're part of the team. I was wondering if you, if you have, as you were talking a little bit, maybe you could talk a little bit about Al-Qaeda's clandestine strategy in Libya, Ansar al-Sharia, and sort of, as an analyst, you had to track all this stuff and, and sort of figure out who was who and what they were actually doing. And that, that's, a, that's a hefty hefty workload, I would say. Luckily, I um, had all the analysts at CIA headquarters to uh, back me up. So I relied on them a lot. Um, but yes, it was my main focus is to keep track of all these groups. So it was interesting to look at Answer All Shreya's. As I said, it was less structured than Al-Qaeda. And I think people are a little more familiar with um, like Al-Qaeda or Islamic State and how, how they were structured. Um, so Answer All Shreya had um, groups established in different locations. So one of the questions was how were they geographically how are they communicating? So like there was a group in Derna, there was a group in Benghazi, um, Tunisia. So like, are they all the same group? Are they independent groups? How are they communicating if they are? And so that was some of the, um, you know, sort of critical questions that we were looking at. And then also, um, again, with that like relationship. So, so much in Libya was done based on relationships. And that was sort of a, a paradigm shift for me where I was used to looking at groups who, um, you know, they had leaders there, like even down to the cell level, there was a leader of the cell and like people had different roles. Um, and, and they were, I think, you know, working together more as, you know, part of the organization. Whereas in Libya, it was very much on a personal level. Like you said, like, Oh, well, I knew him back in Sudan and mm -hmm. like, you know, you think that was because of the, the, the post revolution or the revolutionary chaos. You think that's why it was sort of that sort of unsettled organizationally like that originally, because basically they're trying to, trying to get everything squared away. There's still fighting going on. There's no real, you know, Ansar Sharia of course does start doing local governance in Benghazi as a sort of show of force and to try and say that they can do, you know, be a government. But of course that doesn't last. Um, so you think it's it, it, it a function of the chaos basically in Libya at the time that they, they, they were able to get that sort of organizational structure down pat like they did elsewhere? 
It could be part of it, but I think some of it too is just the culture in Libya and how um, that tribal dynamic plays out. So there were, you know, many tribes and then the tribes each had militias. And um, so a lot of the loyalty stayed with that um, tribal affiliation. And so as people were getting positions like in the government, they were still loyal to their tribe or militia. And that was the same, like we've already talked about with like the LAFG. Um, and I think that was the same with like Ansar al-Shri and Benghazi where their loyalty was still to their little enclave. And, um, and they would vouch for each other based on that personal affiliation. So I think it was just, a, it was a little bit different than, you know, some of the other groups that I've looked at. Gotcha. You know, it's interesting you're talking about the connections between the different um, Ansar al-Shri groups. And I don't know if you saw. I don't know if you saw this video that came out after Muhammad al-Zahawi was killed or died. Um, there was this sort of they had this uh, basically funeral uh, forum of some sort, and he was laying there, and it was the head of Abu uh, of Ansar al-Shri in Tunisia, Abu Ayad al-Tunisi, was actually sitting there stroking his hair uh, gently and sort of remembering his comrade in arms. And Abu Yad al-Tunisi uh, may shock you to find out or learn, or you already know this, he was an Al-Qaeda veteran himself. <laughs> and, and basically after he was killed, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb came out and said, oh yeah, he was a member of our Shura Council all along, uh, Abu Yad al-Tunisi, as he was the head of Ansar al-Sharia Tunisia. I was wondering if, if, you, if you speak a little bit about or what your experience was in terms of Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb, um, sort of before the rise of ISIS, what they were doing in, in Libya and how they tried to hide their hand or, you know, or, or whatever, whatever your observations were. And they were um, certainly interested in using Libya, um, again, because it was pretty lawless. So um, they were going, you know, north from where they normally might operate mm -hmm. and coming into southern Libya. So, again, they seem to be making the connections to Ansar al-Sharia based on that um, personal affiliation. So, like, yep. some of the individuals in um, AQIM knew some of the individuals in Ansar al-Sharia, and so that's kind of how they made that connection. Um, but, yeah, we were watching it. I was watching it. I was very concerned. We saw all these groups coming in and um, see during the fighting out there at the end, what I was really worried about was that, um, you know, the, the terrorist groups were going to use the fight, the militia fighting, the civil war as cover to come attack us um, sort of similarly to what they did in Benghazi. And um, I think one of the things we've talked about, like some of the stuff I struggled with. So like, one of those things um, was the, like, Operation Dignity started in May of 2014. And so that was, you know, with, like, Khalifa Haftar. And it started as a fight against Ansar al-Sharia. And up to that point, like, we, we, the United States, had not taken any action against Ansar al-Sharia for the Benghazi attacks. And so then you had this guy come in, and he was leading this effort to to attack them and and it, they ended up killing like some of the leaders that were involved. And so it was like, it was a struggle to see this going on and then not be able to um, like rather than support or like show demonstrate support for this um, group that um, is fighting terrorists. And that same time we had the state department looking at working with LAFG. And so like for me as a counterterrorism analyst, like that was, that was rough to see mm -hmm. that dynamic start to play out where like it was okay to work with this one, but then this 
this group over here that's fighting the terrorists that that killed our citizens like we weren't gonna um, work with them or help them so that was that was really quite hard for me that was a struggle sorry you you um well, actually believe... let, me, let me follow up somewhere right there yeah, sure. because because she just hit on something here uh that in dc so i've had meetings throughout dc with people in government and what you said just there would absolutely you know that their ears would be ringing right there because Hef, they did draw a big bright line around heftar in libya and saying we can't ally with them or work with them or try and tame them at all and they did seem to have this sort of fascination worth working with islamists and extremists and seeing them as having legitimacy it's really a bizarre dynamic and one of the one of the other guys you mentioned in the book is Wassam Benamid, um, you know, a guy who um, you know we now know from memos released from the State Department was actually meeting with the State Department just two days before the Benghazi attack to discuss, ironically enough, security in Benghazi. And Wassam Benamid was a guy who, as you write in the book correctly, was you know deeply in bed, had a close personal relationship with Zahawi, the head of Ansar al Sharia in Benghazi. We got photos showing that in video. Um, he was working with Ansar al Sharia, which was one of the principal groups behind the attack in Benghazi. Um, so, just I don't know, your book to me speaks to sort of the messy details of all this. And what do you think explains this idea that you know you had people that were. I get the reservations around Heftar, right? I mean, he's a at one point he was an aspiring dictator. He killed a lot of people. But what do you what do you what do you ascribe this sort of tension that you're talking about here? Um, what do you ascribe this sort of notion, this willingness to sort of look the other way when it comes to certain brands of extremists, but draw the hard line on guys like Heftar? Right, Heftar is a little bit unique in that he was also you know a U.S. citizen, so sure. That was a complicating factor, but he was working with the ELSOF, the Libyan Special Operations Forces. So um, we did look at um, trying to support the ELSOF and maybe getting them like more ammunition or something, but we ended up not doing that. And so I think he's a little bit different, but like in, in general, to answer your question, I think um, the excuse that was given or the reason was that, you know, these LAFG members had... Um, joined the Libyan government. So um, they were, you know, they were official representatives, so they should be able to meet with them if they wanted. And then um, I think, you know, there's this interest in working with the Misratan militia, which offended me deeply because like they almost killed me. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't understand the, what dynamic is at play there that made them want to work with the Misratans more. Um, they were winning, so that could be it. Um, they were definitely more organized and better armed. Um, but that, you know, that's still, they're still fighting today. So I'm not sure um, why I pick one side or the, over the other. And in Libya, you know, neither neither is clean, neither is neat. Um, yeah. So I'm, I know that's not a great answer to your question, but I don't know what prompted that decision. Yeah, no, the reason why I ask is because um, it's not a phenomenon that's unique to Libya. Um, you know, we've seen uh, in Washington in particular, and this is something Bill and I have been struggling with figuring out how to talk about and deal with. Um, there is oftentimes we see that our apologists for various strains of extremism throughout the greater Middle East and North Africa. Um, and I don't want to say that the people who are doing this have bad motivations in all cases. They may have pure motivations. They may think that there's some political path to sort of democracy or freedom that they're pursuing. Even if we disagree with that idea, I don't want to you know, say that they're necessarily um, coming at it from, from the wrong, from a, a bad sort of starting point. But 
Um, some people are coming from a bad starting point in our experience. Some people are apologists for these groups. You know, we deal with that with the Taliban. There's Taliban apologists who have tried to whitewash that history. You get, uh, you know, different extremist groups in different places. We had to deal with it in Syria where you had people in Washington who wanted to work with basically al-Qaeda cutouts and all various other extremists to overthrow Assad. There was a whole big push in Washington to do that at one point. Um, it all goes to, on a charitable, in a charitable way, I try and describe it as what I call naive interventionism. Um, which is basically, let's just get involved and we can shape events and sort of overconfident in America's ability to do that. Um, that's sort of the best case scenario, I would say, best explanation for it. But we'll get back to that in a little bit, in a second, because I want to, I'm curious what your view is of now we're going forward about American interventionism and what we can and can't do and all this. But that's sort of teasing the end of this. We can't do that yet. Let's, let's wait. Let's wait here for a minute. Um, Bill, you had one other question on this before we move on? Yeah. So I, 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 you said something earlier and I, I want to make sure that the that I heard this correctly. You said that the CIA came to the conclusion that the uh, Libya Revolutionaries Operation Room, which is the Misrata, the alliance with the Misrata um militia tribal group, that they that there was direct evidence of ties with Al Qaeda and, and Islamists between the two. Is that correct? Did I hear that correctly? That was the CIA's assessment, right? Well, that was my assessment. But you said analysts that the CIA agreed with you, did you not? That we were concerned about it, like connections between the groups. So the LROR's, the Libya Revolutionary Operations Room. So that was a sort of a kidnapping group that they formed and they conducted a bunch of kidnappings specifically against foreign diplomats. And there were a lot of threats um, against us, against the Americans in country that they were very interested in conducting a kidnapping and um, specifically targeting us. So um, we knew there were connections, like I knew there were connections between the LROR and the LFG and Al-Qaeda and Sorrel Sharia. Okay, and so you briefed that to the ambassador, correct? Yeah. Yeah, and the, the, and they, they decided to discard that to continue negotiations. So basically, they're ignoring intelligence. Am I, am I correct to assume that? Yeah, I think one of the anecdotes I have in the book as well is when they've sent out some um, some people through uh, Matika and how much that concerned me yeah. um, for all the reasons that we've kind of already talked about that they were using it. Um, it was controlled by LFG that they were using it to um, send out fighters and fighters were coming back through there associated with the Islamic state. Um, so I was, I was really worried to have them go through there. And then there was a direct connection between those LAFG members and the ones involved in this kidnapping unit, the LROR. So I think, you know, we were really lucky that they weren't kidnapped. Yeah. And at, at this time, what you had the, uh, I believe it was a Jordanian ambassador, or, uh, there was a number of ambassadors Tunisian and ambassador personnel that, Tunisians, that yeah. were kidnapped, correct? Right. Yeah. It started with a South Korean trade official. There were multiple Tunisian mm -hmm. diplomats that were kidnapped. I think the most, um, notable one was the Jordanian ambassador to Libya and he was held and then exchanged for a terrorist that was being held in Jordan that was convicted um, al-Qaeda affiliated so but wait Sarah why, why would they why would they want to exchange for an al-Qaeda guy if they're not al-Qaeda right right so weird yeah weird how it um, works right yeah so that I mean that would that was my job though while i was there right as the analyst like i was briefing this every day and so like i mentioned that them flying out through matiga so i 
I'm sure you'll know, Abdul Hakim Bilhaj. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the ambassador had met with him, got his assurances that using Matiga would be just fine and um, mm-hmm. wanted to trust him and um, decided to do so. And, and of course, like, had a huge, huge problem with that. I was very concerned. Yeah, the U.S. ambassador does not come off very well in your book. I got a lot of impression that you were just not a big fan of how the State Department conducted its operations inside Libya. And they were not very well prepared. And actually, like I, I tried to be very nice. <laughs> in the yeah, book you're trying, you could tell, we could tell we're doing this on Zoom, and you could tell you're trying to pull your punches a little bit. You don't want to. We're the bad guys. We could be the bad guys, Sarah. We could say it for you. So don't worry. You know we. We're willing, okay. we're willing to do that. We're always the bad guys. It's fine. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God. Um, well, you had a couple anecdotes in your book, though, like little snippy stuff, like, you know, not not being offered a, a cup of water or something like that at one yeah, point. After, yeah, after this saying, long you know, convoy, you're in right. there for, it has to be, what, almost a day, and you make it to Tunisia, I believe it was, and you have State Department representatives uh, or it was, this might have been at the border crossing, if I remember correctly, and um, to Tunisia. And they say, oh, you're not a state personnel. You can't have a bottle of water. And you guys, thankfully, took the water and went and sat down and ate the food. I love that story. It's a, you know, you just basically told them, screw you. Yeah, but what kind of of snippy nonsense is that? I mean, I'm reading this anecdote. I'm like, come on. This is childish stuff, right? I mean, this is really ridiculous. You know, you're you're all working for the U.S. government. Yeah, all Americans. Yeah. Yeah, It it was just a weird dynamic. um, And I'm not sure where it came from. Like, I feel like in DC, I got along quite well with all my uh-huh. State Department colleagues, sure. and but it was very much different in the field. Hmm. So there was tension sort of throughout the year with um, the embassy and then officers who are not um, State Department. So um, there was a bit of tension just in like everything down to clothes, right? <laughs> like right. I was yeah. wearing jeans and t-shirt um and you know like they were wearing like full suits um which i know is again another like really small detail but i think that is sort of emblematic of like the cultural difference between um state department and then when you have such an obvious difference and and mission like i i think i talk a lot about the attention with the ambassador it was was the information. So it was like the intelligence I was briefing, like if it didn't line up with what she was being told publicly, um, you know, that, that also caused some tension, even though like as the CIA analyst, I, I was briefing all the information. So um, it was an interesting dynamic that um, never really went away. And um, I think it was especially like with, some of the security officers um, weren't, they were treated even worse than like I was, for example. Um, and so then during the actual evacuation, I think that that tension sort of came to the forefront. And I think that's where some of that, like that petty stuff came from, where like, you weren't going to give me a bottle of water. Um, and then we got to that air station and like the embassy in Tunis had brought down like dinner for the mission and um, they implied, you know, like we couldn't go in and get any. So like I marched in there and I got a stack and was handing them out to like the security officers. Cause they were, you know, like they were like, we're not going to 
deal with that. <laughs> like, well, I will. <laughs> so I went in and, and got food. Um, That's why you were so respected, Sarah. They think <laughs> like, right? not on my watch. Mm-hmm. So uh, thank you. But it, I don't, I don't understand that dynamic again. It's all, you know, like one team, one fight you would think, but um, the different agencies are definitely um, have a different focus and different culture in themselves. And, um, and you can really see that more in the field. It's, it's really surprising given that state has been forward deployed in multiple combat zones. It's not like it's the first time state, you know, what, what was this 2014 that state gets to go to, uh, it, it you know, was maintaining an embassy in an area of uh, of uh, that's at war. I mean, we've been in Iraq, we've been in Syria. I'm sorry, uh, yeah. Well, at that point, no, I'm sorry, Iraq and it would be Afghanistan would be the two biggest. So you would think they would have learned by this point, but it's like the State Department. And look, I'm not ragging on everyone here at the State Department. There's no a lot listen. Of good Amb- Ambassador there. Stevens, by the way, was a hero of American. Yeah, American absolutely. Hero. I mean, you know, so a, you know, he's don't a guy want that who knew, to come he knew what he was dealing with and where he where he was. He knew that he was surrounded by bad guys, and uh, you know he. You know, the Benghazi story, which is a, a big hook for all this, of course. I mean, I think that was lost sort of in all this that, you know, he was, I think he was, based on everything I've read, he was clear-eyed about what was going on. He believed in his mission, what he was doing. We can get into that. Yeah, um, I I agree. And I have a lot of respect for my State Department colleagues. Sure. So I don't mean to like imply I don't. I think, you know, part of it might actually go back to your um, other question about um, like who they would meet with and why and, and this cultural mission difference so like again in general terms like it might make sense for like the cia to meet with a terrorist leader um that wanted to talk um and to do that clandestinely and it's very different for the state department to do that because that's in an official capacity representing the u.s government so i think that dynamic is also at play and maybe some of their choices as well uh, both part of both Bill and my our brains just now just went off on a whole tangent about the Taliban talks with the State Department in Doha. We, we're not going to go into that, but you want to talk about talking to terrorists? Uh, yeah, and and except the point you're raising, I think, is the crucial one that you can offer them political legitimacy by doing that, um, and that's a, a big big problem we 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 think in as well. So. Um, Let's get to the aftermath. What do you think, Bill? Get to the aftermath and the, yeah, the sure. Is there anything Benghazi? I feel like we miss Benghazi, dude. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't really talk about the attacks. No, yeah. I, I was trying, and I did. I I had a big hand in the script for the show, and the reason why I did that is because Benghazi would talk to death. I'll give you my my two second take on that, Sarah. Right? I think the Republicans went all haywire on Benghazi. I think there's a real story there of what went wrong on within the administration. Of course, there is. Um, uh, but I also kind of um, think that the story was sort of lost. What actually the plot was sort of lost over time because of the politics in Washington and what happened. Um, you know, I always refer to there's the Senate Intelligence Committee put out a report identifying the main groups behind the Benghazi attack. And I was more curious if you sort of remember this report at all. But it was the Senate Intelligence Committee was controlled by the Democrats, so it wasn't a partisan report. Um, and they said that members of AQAP, AQIM, Ansar al Sharia, the Muhammad Jamal Network. Uh, and others were all involved in this attack. And my big joke on that, Sarah, is that, okay, well, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, those are two regional branches of Al-Qaeda, loyal to Al-Qaeda's emir. You have Ansar Sharia, which is all now this, you know, this a, a bunch of documentation about the Al-Qaeda ties there at this point. 
Um, and Muhammad Jamal Network, Muhammad Jamal was an Egyptian who was a, a Lieutenant Diamond al-Zawahiri and was actually, we have, you know, excerpts from his letters to Zawahiri, you know, during this period, he was reporting to him. He's a U.S. designated, U.N. designated terrorist who was building his own Al-Qaeda branch. So only in Washington did Al-Qaeda plus Al-Qaeda plus Al-Qaeda plus Al-Qaeda not equal Al-Qaeda, right? I don't, I don't, I don't get it to this day. Uh, but, uh, cause like, to me, it's sort of, you know, like the jihadis got one off, you know I mean? It, it's just the nature of the business, you know? Um, but talking about Benghazi, so I didn't want to get sidetracked and all that because I don't want to get into the politics of it all. I'm sick of it. I'm sure you're sick of it too. But but you you definitely think that um, you know not enough was done to protect Americans in Benghazi. I know that from the book, from what you've written in the book. I, I maybe share a little bit about that. I I don't think there was enough security, and so I I mentioned in the book like that's one of the things I was really focused on in Tripoli a year later. So I got there in July of 2013. So not even a full year, and. Um, looking at the security that was in place in Benghazi. So one of the main things, which I don't think people are generally aware of, is that we had a militia providing our perimeter, like outer security, and that's what they had in Benghazi as well. And so, um, again, that gets to like who you can trust and that personal um, relationship dynamic that's at play in Libya and so you have this militia and you don't think it's affiliated but um, you know people in that mm-hmm. militia um, could know people in answer yeah. Tria and so um, that was one of the things I was really focused on in Tripoli um, you know the year later is did I see anything like that happening with the Zintan militia and and I didn't but that was very much a focus and then there was this, you know, sort of series of attacks that led up to the Benghazi attack. So like um, there was like an IED on the wall and then like went on the car and stuff like that. So um, they're really like, you could see the shift. Yeah. One of those attacks was done. One of those attacks was done in the blind shakes name, they, you know, which another is another huge tell, you know, if you're saying, you know, this is Sheikh Sheikh Rahman, you know, Omar Abdul Rahman is, uh, you know, the, we're doing this in his honor or, or in his name. That's sort of a, you know, a big tell of where you're coming from, from the jihadi world, you know? Yeah. I think a lot of people um, give him a shout out in their attack plans. Yeah. Yeah. yeah through exactly. the years. And, and one thing I, I that really, I, I was not aware of this, and I think it's a, a real tell as to how you know that the state came to the realization that um, maybe it wasn't providing the correct security is that uh, and I apologize to my marine friends if I get the, uh, the the name right but there's a marine unit that um, provides security for the US embassies it's tasked with that but it at Tripoli it was replaced with an actual marine combat unit so they they wanted to get soldiers in there that actually had been in combat and I thought that was a very interesting nugget within your report and those are the guys that you seem to get along so well with is that correct and they were split between the two compounds. Um, the bulk of them were at the U.S. Embassy facility, and then there were some at the compound. Um, and then they kind of rotated between the two um, and then ended up kind of just staying where they were during the fighting. But yeah, they were charged with the, everything inside the perimeter, right? So the militia um, was everything outside because there was no functioning like police or military, anything. It was all militias, which again, like is a whole other tangent we could go down. Um, mm-hmm. And then the Marines were everything inside that fence. So, you know, we had a, like a 50 cal that was pointed at the front gate because that was the most vulnerable point 
Um, and they were charged with literally stopping anything that came past the wall into the compound. But then, you know, the threat ended up being rockets and anti-aircraft artillery. And, um, you know, there's, there's no defense for that. We had bunkers, but, um, you know, if, if we took a direct hit on a bunker, it, it would, it would just destroy it. Yeah. And by the end, it, it, it seems like you guys were under fire almost constantly, uh, in those last couple of weeks. So but Sarah, you're, um, I assume if you're a nerd like us, that you're still paying attention, even though you, you've moved on, um, is, uh, what would you, how do you assess the situation in, in Libya today? I honestly make a, like, I try not to read about try. it because <laughs> <laughs> I, like at some point for my own mental health, I had to let it yeah. go. Um, I very generally follow, like I'll read headlines and stuff, but, um, I, I truly haven't been going into detail, trying to stay up with, um, what's going on. Like, I know, I know they're still fighting, like it's still Haftar on one side. And then like, I wrote a few articles as well. Right. So there was like the dueling governments and, you know, East versus West and, um, you know, it's still going on to this day that yeah, so, really sorry no no <laughs> go ahead one of the harder things has been seeing like sort of the the power vacuum fill you know after we left and most of the foreign presence left so seeing things like the slave trade take off um that was really quite difficult and so yeah i mean it's it's horrifying that there could be open slave markets and you know exactly. this day and age and so at some point i just like f- i had to stop reading about it. i'll still like post on social media about it sometimes but um like to be so involved like day in and day out i i can't do that anymore yeah you, you, i'm sanity has to come first right your your personal health you know suffering i, I can't speak from experience here but just knowing enough pe- uh, of friends and colleagues who have you know, post-traumatic uh, stress disorder. It's it's a something that must be difficult to deal with. And I imagine immersing yourself day in and day out is not the solution to this. No, it, you know, I just have to move on from it. So like when I, when I left and came back to the Seattle area, I did not want anything to do with intelligence. Like it was uh, definitely a choice that I wanted to leave that behind. Like I knew I was still going to do the book. So um, need to get through it to be able to write the book and talk about what happened. But um, other than that, like what I've been doing out here is very much focused on using some of the other skills that I learned, right? So like the, going through an evacuation and going through a shelter in place, like those are things that we plan for um, here for natural disasters. And so still using some of the skills and abilities that I gained um, from my last career for this one. But like now it's, it's pretty cool to be able to help, you know, my hometown and plan for some of these disasters and like, what does an evacuation actually look like? Yeah. That using your skills that you learned in, in your, in your past. I mean, that's, that's admirable. And thank you for your service. You're continuing your service. Um, you know, so again, I, I, at the beginning, I noted that this is a this is a book about faith, and it, it reading at the, when you come to the conclusion of this, it seems very clear that you lost some of your faith, and not faith in your family, your friends, or colleagues, or America, or God, 
but it seems that you lost faith in, in our leadership. Uh, you made a very powerful statement, um, and it resonates with both Tom and us. These are issues that we deal with um, as we see problems continue. Um, would you remind? Would you mind reading this for us? Yes, so it's this part, sort of at the end of my book, where I say, we stood by as the country fell apart around us. We watched as Libya became a terrorist safe haven about to be taken over by Islamic extremists. While I risked my life to brief the impending conflict and spread of terrorism, my government watched and waited, did nothing, and then gave up. And I knew, beyond a doubt, I'd never be the same again. It's extremely powerful. Would you say that you lost faith in our leadership and its policies? Absolutely. We had gone there because, you know, it was supposedly so critical to our national security that we be there, that we help, you know, with the revolution and top Gaddafi and, um, you know, people literally died for that mission. And then, you know, I we all gave up so much like their blood and sweat and tears um, while I was there and we sacrificed so much to be there because, because of the mission and then to, to just give up. Like we watched, we stood by, we didn't pick a side. That was one of the main um, sort of mantras that we had throughout the years. Like the ambassador said, you know, like the administration didn't want to pick a side. We were going to sort of support everyone um, so that it was an overwhelming sense of loss when we left to have that and to know that um, by the time it felt like it meant nothing right that we had done all this and that it didn't mean anything like people didn't even really know about it and so for me writing a book was a way to make it matter um, so that those sacrifices would be known and and would mean something again. Yeah, and I, th- I think this is something that our um, our our leadership really doesn't understand. That so many make such great sacrifices. I'm not just talking soldiers who make f- wonderful sac- sacrifice, but you know, people like you within the CIA, within the State Department, with USAID, make incredible sacrifices, and yet we don't fight to win or even fight for a desirable outcome, which doesn't have to necessarily be victory. And yet you never get a sense of closure if um, if you're going to play not to win, um, if you're going to not take sides. And I, I think that's something that has to make it very, very difficult for those who have given so much to um, and, and see that, that it was basically – Almost all for, I won't say it's all for nothing, but it's not because you take your skills and, and you're, you're applying them to your community and, and so many do this. And, but, but the, at the national level, right, we just, the, the, the sense of accomplishment in, in a mission kind of goes a long way to know, to make those sacrifices count. Yeah. And, you know, seeing it play out now in Afghanistan as well, like negotiating with the Taliban, as you mentioned, like that's, that's hard that's hard to see that happening. And yeah, it took a long time to like really reconcile um, and, and ask myself like, why, why did I do what I did? And so I mentioned like writing the book was a way to make it matter, but then like ultimately come to the realization, like I didn't risk my life for my country. Like that idea is too big. You know, I risked it for the people I was there with the 
my friends, my colleagues. And, you know, I think it's, um, it's important, I think, for people to know that that's often what it comes down to. Like, you know, there's this idea, like, I wanted to go and serve my country. And, um, and I did that. But when it comes right down to it, like, what was I willing to die for? Like, I wasn't willing to die for my country. I didn't want to, I was willing to die for the person next to me. Well, that is right. You know, they always say, you know, you fight for the guy next to you in the, in the foxhole, but, um, you know, that's, it's certainly common. Um, it really is frustrating, um, you know, for Tom and I to watch, watch all of this play out. And it's not just this administration or the last administration, it's three successive administrations. And, um, it's, it's hard to ask people to sacrifice uh, for, for losing strategies. But um, do you think it's possible for the U.S. to, to write our foreign policy wrongs? Or do you think that we're, we're too far gone, too far down this path of, of just half-hearted fighting? I think it is possible. I hope. <laughs> I, guess. I guess that's a better way of saying it. I, I hope it's possible. Um, and I don't know that you know, we can really right our wrongs, but um, maybe correct course is a better way of saying it. So I don't think we can go back and fix the things that we've done, but hopefully we can make better choices going forward. And at the end of the book, you talk about that very difficult choice you had uh, once you'd returned from uh, Tripoli and got back to the States. And you you spoke to your mother about it, and uh, she gave you, I think, some very wise counsel. She told you, don't make a, a rash decision. Take a a year to do so, and it seems like you went one year to the day, to the very day, and you made that decision. And talk to us about that very difficult decision that you had to make. And do you think that was the you made the right decision? I definitely made the right decision. Uh, I needed to leave, and it was hard because, especially with a job like the CIA, it becomes your life. So especially with what I was doing, like counterterrorism the whole time. And as you know, like homeland threats are sort of like the, the main concern, right? So like it was, I was busy and um, worked really long hours and so dedicated to that mission. And, and it just becomes your life, right? Like I didn't, my friends were from the agency. Um, I, I never like started my own family, um, the work was everything. And so I think leaving that becomes quite difficult because it's so much like a part of the, like it was part of my identity. Like I was a CIA officer. (laughs) And you know, at some point you have to, it's like, well, I can still say I was a CIA officer. Like I will always have done that. Um, And it's okay to move on. And I think like it's so insular and you forget that there's a whole wide world out there that um that exists and and in some ways it was really hard to come out here to the seattle area and like there's people who didn't know that we were still at war right and so that was that was hard to to hear things like that and you know like i tell people i was in libya and they're like oh it'd be such a great place to go i'm like (laughs) you have no idea do you you know what you're talking about and um you know people like so outrage about Benghazi and have no idea that it's, it's in the country of Libya. Right. Um, so there were things like that that were quite hard, um, to look at, but then, you know, being here, there's, 
it's nice in some ways that people um, are more focused on like families and like local stuff and the local politics. And so it was very much a way to sort of disconnect and I'll, I'll always have both parts of me inside me, you know, it, I don't think I'll ever be able to really let go of, of that interest in national security and um, what I did with the CIA. And like, I'm always going to care about terrorism always like, I'm an analyst still, even though I'm not doing that job anymore. Like I still approach problems like an analyst. Um, but it's also nice to be able to let some of that go and, um, and just be with family. Yeah, and serve your community and get out on the Puget Sound and kayak a little bit, a bit <laughs> right? Kayak again. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. I love well, it. Well, on that note, I think, um, I think we should wrap this up. Um, but First, I'd like to say thank you to Sarah uh, for joining us this week. Thank you for your, ser- uh, your service to your country. Um, thank you for writing the book. Um, the book is a great book. We highly recommend it to all of our listeners. People should definitely read it. It's In the Dark of War, a CIA officer's inside account of the U.S. evacuation from Libya. And this has been Sarah Carlson is the author. Uh, amazing story. Really combines a lot of different elements together in a, in a well-written account. Um, and we recommend it. And thank you, Sarah, for joining us this week. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Sarah. It was great to have you on. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking with you. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in again this week to Generation Jihad. Please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your shows. And we'll see you again next week.